listening to Daily Note, presenting by Almost Sideways. Just when they think they got the answers, I change the questions. I have come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass. Are you chewing gum? Hey everybody, welcome to another sit-down conversation. My name is Adam, and this is a very special one here. We have an amazing guest here, but I am also joined by another almost sideways contributor, and that is Mr. Zach Saltz. Zach, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great, Adam. I just picked up my Criterion copy of Parasite today, which I was just checking out before our wonderful conversation that we're about to have, and um, super excited to watch it in black and white. Can't wait to do that in maybe the next few days. Yeah, absolutely. Got to pick that one up myself as well. So probably jump off, go hope, hop over to the store right after this conversation's over. But uh, when I, I love doing these sit-down conversations and branching out to other YouTubers across the world. And one of these, you knew, Zach, that I was doing these for quite a bit now. And you said you recommended, check this guy's channel. This is a guy I want to talk to and have a good conversation with. So I'll have you introduce his channel and who he is because you're the one who introduced him to me. So go ahead, Zach. Yeah, well, um, you know, Adam, we've talked a little bit about, um, I'm a big Criterion collector and um, I enjoy watching um, and hearing about other Criterion collectors um, experiences and their reviews and their film taste. Criterion is a major reason why I'm passionate about films and um, I stumbled across Daisuke Befu's channel maybe about a year ago and um, have just been thrilled with the videos that he puts out. Um, they're a mixture of both um, admirations of the films themselves, but also the label criterion. And um, I'm just astonished at the volume, the sheer volume that he has. So as a collector, um, I'm, in, I'm in awe and I'm so thrilled to have him here today on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So without further ado, Daisuke, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Oh, thank you very much for the warm greetings and greetings from Tokyo. Thank you so much. It's a real honor to, to join you and to meet you like this and to be able to, uh, to, to have conversations with you. So thank you very much. I, it, I'm really looking forward to it. We are, we are as well. And uh, so I guess I'll hop off the, the first kind of like softball question for, for any conversation is, Growing up, were you always like a, a movie co- fan or a collector, or how did you grow up like really liking movies? Oh yes, so I think I I'm uh, I, I I was uh, I was growing up in the '80s, so I was a, I'm a child of the '80s, and this was at the time of VHS rental stores, <laughs> and they were really picking up. And so my childhood memories now uh, are more or less of that time. And so I can't remember a time where I wasn't uh, into films. And so, and especially with the VHS uh, culture that I was exposed to, that meant a lot of, of uh, genre, what we now might refer to as genre films, as well as uh, a lot of, uh, uh, um, uh, let's see, uh, horror films and sci-fi films. And I was also growing up uh, in the U.S. at the time. So that meant the, uh, that, that U.S. aspect of 
that VHS culture was very much a part of me, uh, part of my growing up. And I'm, uh, I, I'm, I was born in Japan, and so um, I'm Japanese by birth. And uh, so I would also, every now and again, uh, through my family or through my relatives in Japan at the time, I would also have uh, maybe films or v VHS tapes of, of uh, releases in Japan. So sometimes you'd get things that you couldn't uh, necessarily get at the time in the U.S. So that was also a nice, a nice thing. It was also good, too, because my parents were also very uh, much into film. Uh, my father in particular loved he he loves uh, certain types of Japanese films. He also loved uh, uh, like uh, westerns, and he really loved Clint Eastwood movies. And um, uh, my mother uh, was uh, a big fan of of uh, he, uh, you know he's he was in the news recently, of course. But uh, uh, Sean Connery films. Uh, she was a big fan of Sean Connery movies, and so uh, 007 films uh, came up a lot. Uh, Sergio Leone films came up a lot. Um, uh, and and things of that nature. So it's always been in the air, I think. Uh, yeah, so I can't remember it's like the first film I ever saw. I can't remember that because uh, uh, that's I think uh, uh, it, it, it's it's always been there. I suppose. So I, I I don't think that answers your question well, but uh, I hope that's a good good, good enough answer. Oh no, that's that's perfect. It's kind of like kind of with your background in history, you have a, like a kind of a really. Rod, growing up with a family who loves film, it kind of gets you early exposure to something too. So you can only imagine that all the films you have seen. So uh, Zach, did you want to expand on anything or ask? Yeah, I was curious, Daisuke, when, when you were growing up, um, you mentioned video cassettes, but um, were you a big um, admirer of actual film going, like going to movie theaters or would you say most of your experiences were mostly on video? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, uh, I would love to go to the movie theater, of course, uh, but it would always be this little mini event. And so uh, we wouldn't be able to go every day, of course. We wouldn't be able to go every week. I'm, I'm, when I say we, I'm talking about my family. Yeah. But maybe, I don't know, it, it would have been maybe a, a once uh, every I don't know, two weeks, three, maybe once a month type of occurrence, maybe even, I'm not sure exactly, but it was, it was, it, we did go to the movie theater. And uh, so this was, uh, I mean, I remember, actually, maybe we went more often um, than, than what I'm suggesting. So maybe it was uh, ever, maybe twice or three times a month type of occurrence. And so that meant going to films. But of course, I was a, a kid. And so there was a, uh, there were some limitations, of course, as to what films that we could see together. Um, I think I just remember, I remember f uh, films going to the theater with my with my family. Let's see, it would be films like uh, there were a real variety at the time. Uh, for some reason, I think films like uh, uh, Supergirl uh, come to <laughs> mind. Um, I think that that comes to mind too because I seem to recall that at the time we went to the theater to watch Supergirl, I think we were the only people in the in the theater, so uh, that was a really amazing thing. I thought it was a fun film, I, but uh, uh, I, I don't know if it was that, uh, well, well uh, I don't know if it was that popular at the time, I'm not sure, but at least the theater that we went to, we were the only ones there at the time, but um, let's see. Uh, uh, Return of the Jedi 
Uh, that was around the time, I think, that we were going to the theater, although I must admit, I don't quite remember that theater experience. I also seem to recall we, uh, uh, you know, I was, I was able to go see films like, uh, like Back to the Future. Nice. And uh, I, I don't remember that much, that one as much as I do say the late, like Back to, I remember Back to the Future Part 2 and Back to the Future Part 3, going to the movie theater anyway. Um, and then I'm, I'm, my memories are much clearer with the later film experiences growing up. And then there was a period when I was going, when I lived in the United Kingdom. And that, that kind of, of the film going uh, was still uh, going on. Although, as you may know, uh, the United Kingdom was a little bit stricter when it came to admittance to theaters as screenings and if you were young you couldn't go to say uh, films that were uh, assigned a 15 certificate or yeah. an 18 certificate so it was strictly pg or u uh, ratings and so a fat, you know, quote unquote family friendly fairs but i do remember fond memories of going to see films like who framed roger rabbit and uh uh that was a that was a lot of fun actually and yeah, fun uh, uh and 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 other films too like space camp and uh, I don't know if you know the film Good Burger. Have you ever heard of this film? Yeah. Good Burger? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and actually, I, I saw the film. I saw the film Jaws Four. You know Jaws Four. It's called Jaws. Jaws the, the Revenge, Revenge, I think, or yeah, Jaws Four. Revenge. Yeah, I, I saw that in the theater. And uh, I rem actually, I, I was a kid, and I was, I was. Uh, uh, I know it, it probably doesn't have the the greatest of reputations nowadays I, I think but uh, I seem I, I, I do remember that there were some f scenes that were really effective in the theater uh, there are some scenes in particular where Michael Caine appeared and people were just clapping and cheering really and they're like oh yay you know I think his name is Hoagie yeah in the in his character I said oh Hoagie you know that that's so some people really into it of course I understand also that there are some really cheesy aspects to that film and and uh, I, I remember seeing the film Jaws 4 in the theater it had a certain ending uh, attached to it. And I thought at the time that was the ending of the film. And then sometime later, I seem to recall watching the film again, maybe TV or something like that. And it had a completely different ending. And I was just blown away. I was like, that's not the ending that I saw. That This is a completely different film. What's going on? And that maybe in some little way, I don't know, maybe that that opens some doors in my mind subconsciously. I'm not sure as to the, the, the scope and, and expanse of the film universe. You know, things can happen and things can change drastically uh, with the stroke of, of an editor's brush, as it were. So maybe I have to thank Jaws 4 uh, for allowing me to see that perspective. I'm not sure, but yeah. yeah. So, so, so it, it, I, as I say, I was a child of the 80s. I think you would be the only person in the world, possibly, that would say Jaws for the Revenge would be the one that kind of expanded your, your curiosity to, uh, to different aspects. That's kind of that's, that's a cool story, though. I definitely remember that film, watching that for the first time. Be like, I did a Jaws marathon. I was like, wow, that's that's a, that's an interesting uh, way to go with the film. <laughs> but yeah, it, it does have. I mean, I I I I, I kind of can guess uh, the the sorts of areas. You know, the whole. I don't. I mean. I don't know how what your rule is on this podcast for for spoilers. I don't. I'm, I'm not going to go so too much old. into. Just, you're good. Okay, so for anyone who who is concerned about being spoiled for Jaws: The Revenge, maybe just tune out for the next minute or so. But uh, uh, you know, or Jaws Two, in fact. But in fact, as you may know, doing a Jaws marathon, there are actually some interesting links between yeah. Jaws Two and Jaws Four. 
I think Jaws 2, they hinted at this idea of, of you know, like uh, sharks don't take things personally, Mr. Brody. And, 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 uh, and uh, uh, Chief Brody's like, what maybe was maybe another shark could have come in. Maybe he, this the first shark could have called but another shark and maybe there could have been another, you know. So there is a hint of this kind of telepathic, I don't know, relationship between sharks or something like that. And I'd like to think, I know that there's also the novelization of Jaws 4 and that sort of expands the, I don't want to get into too much of Jaws 4, but uh, um, I, but I, my point is that I think there's a lot in Jaws 4. I don't, I'm not saying it's the greatest film in the world, but uh, um, you know, I think it's, it's, uh, it's like, I, I was really affected uh, to be perfectly honest. The, the first like 15 minutes or 10, 15 minutes of Jaws 4 as a kid growing up, that really actually scared me. And so even now when I see that film with the, with the boat and the, and, and the, the, the night and the, and the Christmas singing and, and all that really actually scared me. And then it kind of went into this really interesting territory of, of revenge. Yeah. And I suppose, I mean, you know, <laughs> cinema is filled with all these tales of revenge and, and things like that. So, I mean, I guess, I guess if, if a shark can, can go all the way like that, then, I mean, I guess the sky's the limit, I suppose, but you know, uh, <laughs> Uh, it, the film doesn't have to appeal to everyone, I suppose. And as I say, it's not. I, I'm not saying it's the greatest film ever made. But it's a, it's, a it's an interesting story. film. But anyway, yeah. I, I don't know why. Why did I bring it up? It's yeah. It's like uh, it, I just saw it in the theater. I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> it's all good. Sorry it's about fun. that. Sorry, you oh, too. you're fine. Off like it's a. It's a fun experience, though. It's a, a, a it's good conversation. So, one question I did have when I was watching your videos, you did kind of go back and uh, forth. Uh, you went from America. You're born in. Japan, into America, UK, back to Tokyo. Uh, did you find that when you moved around so much, did your taste for film change as well, or kind of kind of go with the the culture of the country? That's a really good question. That is a very good question, and I I would say probably uh, I never thought about it at the time, but now thinking back on it, I would say yes, my taste did change, but it was uh, unintentional. And when I say unintentional, I would say it was due to the fact that I was uh, immersed in different places of the world yeah. and different points in time. And so, for example, uh, so I was in, I was in uh, the US uh, in the you know, early to mid eighties. And then I went over to the UK uh, so I was in the UK from the late 80s to I think the early 90s. And then actually I came back a little bit to the US. And then uh, uh, after, uh, after um, I finished my uh, uh, undergraduate uh, education, I went to Japan. Mm. So, uh, so I would say, for example, my time in the UK, I was exposed and I was watching new things that I had never been exposed to uh, prior to that. So... Uh, that was the first time I was, and, and not necessarily films, but I was the first time I was watching things like Doctor Who. Um, mm. uh, there were some uh, really interesting TV programs I had never been exposed to. 
Uh, so that was a, a really exciting time. Uh, There's some uh, really splendid cultural uh, th thing. Like I was, uh, that was my first time uh, discovering uh, uh, mystery novels. I, I love Agatha Christie. That was the first time I was able to discover those stories and then the adaptations. And so that really opened a lot of doors, I would say, in terms of my ability to, well, maybe not ability, but I was just being exposed to different things and I wasn't able to see these before. And uh, uh, as far as cinema is concerned, there is a, a really interesting, uh, uh, there's a kind of interesting uh, the situation uh, with regard to, uh, um, let's say, cinema of a certain uh, uh, jurisdiction or region of the world. Uh, and this is true for Japanese cinema. This is true, I think, for US cinema, uh, not necessarily Hollywood cinema. And what I mean is, uh, the, you know, sometimes there are films from, let's say, Japan that get a lot of attention outside of Japan because of the filmmaker prestige or the marketing uh, blitz or whatever you want to call it. So, so uh, and sometimes word of mouth from the festival circuit nowadays, etc. So that means certain films from Japan get a lot of attention. But for the most part, my sense is that most of the domestic films from Japan never get a release outside of Japan. And so they're all domestic quote unquote domestic films. There's nothing wrong with that. There are a lot of great things there. But I, I think when I was growing up and when I went to the UK, as I say, when I was, I don't know, uh, like a little kid, right? I was really exposed to films. Like these were films that I was hearing, I was watching on TV, looking at the paper or whatever, seeing commercials for that I would never have seen or heard about if I was still in the, the United States. And so these were really films uh, films that were for domestic audience that were made domestically. Uh, and that really, uh, I think I, that was really becoming more conscious of this kind of, of, uh, of phenomenon, if you will. Uh, you know, not every film is seen everywhere as, yeah. as that, that kind of thing. And so I, I really began to see a, a, maybe a connection between the place and the, and the cinema. Of course, I mean, I'm saying that, but uh, uh, it, it wasn't as pronounced. I was maybe just getting a feel for that. Um, and now I look back on it and I, I think that that was really the case, but uh, like there were films, I don't know, I don't know if you've like uh, uh, some really uh, like, I don't know if they were got, getting releases there, but um, uh, like Nuns on the Run, there's a film called Nuns on the Run, which I don't think was, what, that was, that was an interesting, or um, uh, maybe this got a, a wider release on this year, King Ralph, Do you know this film King Ralph, I think John Goodman, like I think what was the, the, the premise, it was like the entire royal family gets killed in some kind of freak accident. And they find that the only living heir to the throne is John Goodman. And so John Goodman becomes the, the, the king of England or something like that. So I, I think it's called King Ralph. And so that was an interesting, was that? John Goodman was involved. So maybe that, that got a wider release, I'm not sure. But that was, a, that was an interesting one. Uh, so I'm sorry, so I, 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 I'm so sorry to go off like this. But oh, my good. point is that yes, it, it, had, it, it had a kind of effect in terms of being immersed in the culture and also being exposed to new things that I hadn't before. And also maybe the beginning of a sense of, of film and place. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. So Daisuke, I, I, I so admire um, your, uh, your taste, but also your insights about films. Um, I'm wondering, did you ever try to dabble in film criticism or were there any film critics that particularly um, inspired you or maybe gravitated you towards certain directors or genres, um, especially in your formative years? 
Mm, that's a good question. So uh, to answer the first question, no, I've, I've never thought about going into film criticism. Uh, I don't consider, uh, yeah, I, I've, I've never thought about, it. I did study film studies uh, a little bit in college. Um, and so I took film studies courses. And so I was uh, able to read the the you know the, the sort of standards, if you will, of film studies and film criticism, and uh, was able then to, I mean, uh, see also a number of the quote unquote uh, uh, staples or milestones of the of uh, I, I mean I it's pro it, we can probably say say it was it was the Western canon of cinema, more or less, but, but uh, the, it, yeah, I did take film studies, and it was, uh, so I, and I suppose if I had to mention, I could mention film, maybe film critics or film historians, but uh, I do recall, for example, um, let's see, uh, uh, if you, if we're talking about maybe film, like film, Critics, I suppose, or film criticism. I, I don't know. I, I could go. I could say as an example. Here's an example. I remember when I was a kid, and I first read. I first tried to read the Hitchcock book that was by you know Robin Wood, and the Hitchcock yes. book. I don't know. If, and and I, I don't know how you feel about that. I mean, I think it's a very interesting and actually quite important text. But when I admit when I was a kid and I tried to, and I was that was you know, Hitchcock Truffaut. And I had, I think everyone in my generation had that and everyone, right? But, and so I thought, okay, I'll try to get the Robin Wood book. And then I tried it. It was, it was really difficult for me to get, I, I had actually, for many of the spaces, I, I was like, what, what does he say? I have no idea. I can't keep up. And so, so uh, I was, uh, uh, I was really kind of struggling with that. And so I think that, that was uh, one of my gateways, as it were, into, uh, the the real world of the nitty gritty of of film criticism and film analysis, and uh, I'm not talking about oh I agree or disagree with everything that Robin Wood said, but what I'm saying is that it 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 sort of opened the door. It was my first kind of exposure. You know, you could get it at a local bookstore, I think, and you know, just was looking at it at a local bookstore. I was like this this is I have no idea what's what's being said here, and so that that was my first foray into trying to challenge myself in that realm but that being said i don't necessarily uh, and so from there i i went to high uh, i went to college and then i i uh, i went to films uh, I, I took film studies classes uh not a lot but i took uh, my fair share and so i was able to uh, uh read up uh the the classics there but then coming out of of university i don't think i was i don't think i saw myself necessarily as as wanting to or necessarily uh, following that route of of, of uh, academic film criticism analysis per se, although I do enjoy reading that now and again. As far as film, uh, uh, as far as film criticism or film reviews go, I I don't know. Uh, are you asking about reviewers or? Oh, I I just I, I kind of admit, um, yeah. I, I, if there were uh, writers either from an academic background or from a okay. criticism background that may have in, that influenced um, your film taste or maybe um, uh, filmmakers that you gravitated toward. Okay. Okay. So so yeah. So as far as film criticism goes, I'll I'll end the conversation there by saying yeah. It that that of course led me to. A number of different avenues, but it wasn't just the film criticism route. It was also that combined 
with the film studies uh, 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 courses that I was taking. So uh, from there, I was able, I, I would say more in terms of my own exposure to films per se, it was more that that overall package. So I was able therefore to say in college, I took a lot of courses, uh, like I took a Polish cinema class, I took a Brazilian wow. cinema class. Uh, there was a class on, there was a class on Hitchcock. I wasn't able to get into that class, but I was, I was actually working part time at the. It was kind of the film library desk, and so I was able to access all these films essentially wow. for free. And so I, I could just in my spare time just watch all these films. And so I, that that was, and then they had some of the text there. They had a little kind of, not really library, but they had some text there as well. So I could, you know, as I was at the desk and, and I didn't have to take any calls, I could just read some of the text here. That, that was a real great time. So I was exposed actually to a lot of films that way. Uh, and, uh, uh, and along the way, I was able to watch uh, good, a lot of Godard films, for example. Godard films or Antonioni films, uh, Fellini films, a lot of films that weren't available at the time. So we have to remember this was in the uh, uh, 90s mid to late 90s and so uh, dvd was just coming off the ground in a commercial respect and so we were still in this was in the transition period from vhs to dvd and so a lot of vhs was still around there were still some laser discs around as well and we have to remember this at the time for example uh, we might take it for granted for let's take an example of stanley kubrick's fear and desire his first film that was very difficult or impossible to, to find until we had recent great Blu-rays of, I think, Kino or, or Masters of Cinema in the UK. But uh, at the time when I was in college, you couldn't see that film. You could read about it, of course, but you couldn't see it. And then, but at my school, there was an actual print. Uh, it was 16 millimeter, but it was a print of Fear and Desire. And I was able to uh, learn how to run a projector. And so my boss at the time said, you know, you can watch, the, it was a very, a valuable print but he said we have to test the print to see if it's still in good condition and so you can you uh, you know you have permission to ex uh, examine the print so this was my opportunity to watch a film like fear and desire on 16 millimeter which is impossible to watch at the time and i was just reading about it and it was incredible i mean the film itself is a very peculiar work i admit but the the fact that i was able to to watch this uh and this is an example i was then able to watch other films like Fassbender films. I was just going through Fassbender films because I could watch them for the first time. Most of the Herzog filmography was there. So I was able to watch all that. And um, he also had some great professors too at the time. I, I was uh, like, um, um, let's see, uh, uh, D.A. Pennybaker was a professor. Um, and um, uh, I never took any of his classes, but uh, yeah, I, I met him very briefly so he's a, a very interesting gentleman um and let's see uh and and things of that nature so i i'm going on and on i apologize but the point is that i was able to um oh yeah i, I met uh, uh critics like uh, dudley andrew you know, he's a uh, uh he's uh, he, he ex expert in a lot of fields but at the time he was uh, focusing on his course on japanese cinema and so i was able to meet uh, him just very briefly um, and uh, he he was very generous with his time with me and so uh, uh, and I think now he writes uh, there are some instances where he actually writes for uh, for essays for the Criterion Collection for example so uh, so yeah so this is just my my very broad and uh, undisciplined way of saying that yeah I was that this is my my path to uh, to cinema and uh, th this experience I think uh, brought me 
uh, to uh, uh, the, the, my cinema journey that uh, let me out of college. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, that, that's the situation. No, it does. And I, I'm just, I'm reminded a lot, a lot of some episodes in my life too, when I, I'm a little younger than you, but um, I would try to locate these extremely hard to find, oftentimes international titles. Um, and thankfully I grew up in a, in a city that had a really nice uh, video store and I just lived there. And these VHS, these VHS tapes would often be, you know, terrible quality. Um, the, the film for me that was like that was, was My Dinner with Andre. There, there was no good copy of that film for a very long time, except for the New Yorker film's um, VHS copy. And I, I, I think um, I'm the only one who ever rented it from, from that video store, but um, it, it, it almost made it like um, uh, very idealized to try to track down these films. And sometimes it was the journey to find them that was actually more exciting than ending up watching them. I remember being disappointed uh, a few times as well, but, but the journey was always fun. And um, I hope future generations can, can still have that um, because it's, it's just exciting to read about films and, and, and to be uh, encouraged to maybe find something that's hard to find. Yeah, that's a really good point because even now, I would say that there are instances where that VHS search I mean, you mentioned New Yorker and, and you mentioned My Dinner with Andre and, and New Yorker and that label, for example. I mean, I don't know if it's like, I don't know, I, I don't know when this is going to go up, but uh, there are some instances even now where there are titles. I mean, we live in a golden age, don't get me wrong. DVD, Blu-ray, now 4K, streaming. I mean, the sky's the limit in terms of accessibility. But the, the, uh, uh, there are some titles still that are actually quite difficult to get and have never gotten even a DVD release and you can only get them on VHS. And so I would say, I would dare say, you know, the VH or the Laserdisc, Laserdisc VHS beta, that experience I think still has some relevance for not just collectors, but also for film enthusiasts now. I can give you an example, two examples. Uh, one is the, I would say, for example, um, like there's something about watching a film on VHS that is a soul appeal. And I don't know if you feel the same way, but for instance, I love the film, The Thing, John Carpenter's yeah, The Thing. And I love the film, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Another fantastic. Uh, Toby Hooper, The Texas Chainsaw, yeah. But there's just something really mad magical about watching those films on VHS for me. I don't know, it just gives me this, this uh, nostalgic feeling and there's this 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 tangible quality to it that's that is almost uh, irreplaceable in my eyes not to say that any of the subsequent releases are terrible uh because i have a, a a number of them and i really admire them but there's just something quite magical about those experiences also uh there's some titles you just can't get so uh uh what what was uh what was I, I uh something came to mind the other day was that robert brisson the filmmaker from france robert brisson who's famous uh maybe people would know his titles in the criterion collection for example uh, pickpocket a man escaped um the mouchette which is going to get a blu-ray release i think later this year and and, and l'argent uh, uh, as well, and other titles. One title by him that wasn't, uh, that, that I think is not available on DVD is called A Gentlewoman, Une Femme Douce. And uh, this, is, uh, this is actually uh, one that I remember seeing on VHS tape. And I remember renting it actually a number of times. And uh, because I, 
I was discovering Brisson at the time. And now that I think back on those experiences and I realize I think that tape is actually very rare and very difficult to find. And I just, I wish I could have, I mean, it, even VHS tapes back then were quite expensive. Uh, they sometimes, the, the foreign, uh, or when I say foreign, I mean uh, the, the, the world cinema uh, area of, of films when you purchased VHS tapes uh, could run up, say, in the U.S. anyway, like $40, $50, sometimes even $100. And so, and, and Laserdiscs too, that $100, $200 even. So it was, it was uh, retail. So that was a, it was a really expensive market, um, especially for these uh, uh, more obscure titles. Uh, but that's one that I wish I could have gotten. Uh, and if I find it, I, I'm, I'm going to try to get it. But uh, uh, it, it better not be for whatever it is, $300, $400. That's, that's completely uh, out, of my, uh, out of my budget. But, uh, and my, my point is that VHS is still relevant uh, to a certain degree anyway. And so uh, there are a lot of titles that are, are worth checking out. And again, formats are always very, I mean, formats are a great thing, but formats themselves are limited because of finite resources. And so it's, it's, I mean, the sky's the limit, but I always have to remind myself that there are so many films out there beyond the scope of DVD and Blu-ray releases and labels that, that you and I are, are, are familiar with. And so uh, and I think actually uh, in that way, I think streaming is opening up a whole range of avenues. That's, it's, that's very exciting. It also poses a lot of, uh, of uh, issues as well, uh, but uh, uh, there's a lot of excitement in the, in the air. But also I just want to say that I think, as you say, the VHS experience is still, I think, uh, to a certain degree anyway, uh, potentially very relevant, even for a, a, a film lover who is getting into it, uh, starting to get into it just now. Yeah, and oftentimes, you know, these films, um, they might be available on DVD, but they might not be region one, or they might not be, have a region free um, copy. I had a, a similar experience with that this summer. Um, I've been trying to track down this Italian film for a number of years called The Stolen Children. The director was Gianni Emilio. Oh. And um, it, it just eluded me um, for, for so long. And I thought maybe I could track down a VHS copy of it. Well, lo and behold, Amazon Prime started streaming it uh, completely mm. randomly. And so um, I was finally able to watch it this summer after really trying to track this film down for about 10 years. And it was, it was a wonderful experience watching it streaming, but um, it really kind of makes you think about the possibilities that, that streaming really has to, to unite um, fans of all genres and all films and um, make it on a platform that's so much more accessible but maybe lacks that, that sort of charm that you're also talking about with the VHS. Yeah. Well, one thing I would say about streaming, even though it's very convenient and it's also really cool that some of these older films are getting on there, but streaming's always constantly changing. Things are coming on, things are coming off, and that's why physical media is also very important. Granted, like what Daisuke was saying, there's such a big wide scope of films, not that the VHS or the DVD, Blu-ray, whatever, you can't get everything on every uh, on it. So there's pros and cons to both, and especially with like the streaming service HBO Max. Everybody was so excited for all the stuff that's going on there, but like a month later, they were taking stuff off of it, and it's only been out for a month. And so people were really all up in arms, like with the real, that um, what's the word uh, the starting of that streaming service. And but anyway, that's that's yeah, streaming's fun, but it's always going to have those physical, physical copies for me. No, that, no, Adam, that is an excellent point. And I agree. I mean, we always have to remember too, 
that, um, I mean, strictly legally speaking, what is a what is a DVD copy, or what is it? What does it mean when we say, "Oh, I own this on Blu-ray," right? What it actually means is that we are buying the 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 license, the right to be able to watch this particular movie on this home media-based uh, format, which is Blu-ray, in the you know on a private screening, right? That's that's what we so we are essentially buying the rights to watch it. It just so happens that for physical media, it's on this disc. So, so we own the rights to be able to watch this film as it's embodied on this disc on whatever machinery that's required. And essentially the unspoken part of that deal is that we are able to watch this in perpetuity or at least until the disc breaks down or the machine machinery breaks down or whatever. So in essence, it's for lack of a better phrase forever, as long as we have the thing, right? Yeah. With streaming, it's the same kind of thing, right? We are buying the right to watch it through a subscription service or whatever, but how long does it last? It lasts until the service is over or, or the whatever. And I think in those terms of use, uh, uh, that means also that the the service provider can actually change the 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 content, or it can the things can be up, available and made unavailable depending on rights situation. I don't know. So, so it's essentially uh, you know we are dependent on the service provider for that kind of access. If we trust the service provider enough, or there's enough of a trust relationship, a good track record, then I think we're in good shape. But uh, as you say, uh, we, we're not quite sure what can be made available and what will be unavailable tomorrow. Also, we have to remember that what version are we watching on the streaming service in question? As we know, with a number of films, there could be different versions, edited versions. There are certain new director's versions, director's cuts. I think the, the ones that come to mind perhaps immediately to, to a lot of people are the Star Wars films. Yeah. And so we have to remember that that's a big deal for a lot of people. What version are you watching of the Star Wars uh, film, right? And there are actually multiple versions of this, uh, not just the original, not just the special, but but things that came out after that, like different versions of Phantom Menace as well. Like I, I can't keep track sometimes. There's also, but... oh yeah. So even when Disney Plus started, they changed them again. There's different things that changed. So yeah, so that's a good point. So so it's it's hard to keep track and right and 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 we 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 as I think uh, and I think many other people, rightly so, have their preference for this version or that version or and it's not to say that we have to throw away all versions. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying that yeah, there should be this way to be able to a certain degree anyway to try to find the version that is is most palatable to you or the one that you prefer. And I think. Yeah, you know, I mean, on the one hand, I do, uh, uh, I, I do understand to a certain degree the, the the argument of George Lucas and the artist side about trying to have uh, kind of an authorship over the versions. I, I, I can I, I can see that perspective, but at the same time, there is a certain kind of joy in terms of the con the act of consuming the product, and we have to be very discerning about what product we want to consume. I mean, after all, we live in this capitalistic society, I think, right, where we can, where we, I, I would like to think we have a certain degree of choice. 
And I think part of that choice, especially in the film enthusiast market, uh, uh, understandably is what version we would want to, to watch. And I think not having that uh, or having a limited uh, uh, ability to do that, I think is, is a bit of an issue. Uh, and so hopefully streaming will resolve those issues if they come up. But if it doesn't, I think that's something that we have to keep in mind. And so I think, uh, yeah, I agree with what you say about the, 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 this, these issues as far as streaming services. That's not to say that I dislike it entirely. I, as you say also, Zach, there's a lot of great promise to it in terms of accessibility. You only have to look at the Criterion channel to, as proof of that. But uh, yeah, I mean, there, as I say, there are plus and minuses with this, as well as with any format, I, I admit. I mean, these, these issues, I think, also exist inherently in, in DVD and Blu-ray as well, right? Because Blu-ray and DVD, it, it's, it's essentially, uh, right, the, the decision of the label and the rights holder and the licensee and, so, and the contract. And if there's no contract, we don't get it. So, so uh, it, it, these are decisions that are made by these labels, by these companies, by these uh, contracting entities. And so uh, it, it, it does have a little bit of a different effect because of the, per the quote unquote permanence of physical media. But uh, yeah, and these issues do exist in, in any format, I, I grant you, but there seems to be a little bit of a, of a more immediate effect felt with streaming services that I would suggest. Yeah, uh, when you were saying something about like George Lucas and how his rights of ownership as the creator of it, it's the same thing kind of a lot of people are really demanding uh, two movies from James Cameron's library to be put on a 4K format as well. Uh, that is The Abyss and True Lies. Uh, but he said he's not working on those, any of those projects because he's dealing with his, his Avatar films right now. But people are still demanding it, and but he has that ownership over that. So there's also has to be a give and take where we have to, you know, not demand stuff if the director doesn't want to change anything or up the idea that we have to kind of like respect that in a sense too. But then there's also the uh, with that same kind of fan fandoms as well. You're going after different cuts of films as well with like the Justice League movie or with Zack Snyder. And you're yeah. demanding this certain cut because a director changed and the whole studios. And there's, there's so much, when you're making a film, there's so much like different meddling, it seems like from different parties, it seems. And it's kind of a sticky situation in some cases. Yeah, but that's actually good. You bring up a really interesting point though, I think with respect, for example, to the, to Justice League, the, what is it? The Zack Snyder cut, yeah. right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and, it, it, it was also true, I think, with Star Wars special editions, but uh, but it, I, I actually the, the the director's cut is a, it's a I think it's a, a really fascinating example of where you can actually market different versions, and hopefully you can you can market it in a way that could be successful within that particular business model. And so I always thought, I mean, I'm not a businessman, but I always thought. As a consumer, I always thought it would be to the, let's say, studio or the licensor uh, advantage to try to market as many of these versions as possible. I mean, that would just be an extra, I mean, it would be like selling a blue, different Blu-rays of different versions. I mean, people who are fans will buy them. And so, and, and you will create a lot of goodwill, I think, among fans if you make them available like this. And so I always thought it would be a, a really great business opportunity to make them available. For, at, at, like, like for, I think another one was, and I think it's a whole kettle, a different kettle of fish entirely, but I mean, you mentioned Star Wars. I think something about, say, like, I don't know, like uh, the rise of Skywalker, 
And I think there was all this stuff about, wait, are there different versions of the film? Or, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how willing, how far and how, how, uh, how willing, uh, uh, you know the powers that be are willing to to maybe admit that or show their cards show their hands in that way but if that were true let's assume that were true then i think there could be a, a really interesting business uh a, a, a sort of a, a business possibility as far as marketing those different versions i don't know about you but i certainly would have a lot of curiosity enough to to want to see what 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 different takes there were of that particular story i i admit i'm not a really i i i found it i found i went to the theater and watched the film i was a, a little bit underwhelmed to be perfectly honest but yeah. the uh, uh but i thought that that could be a, a kind of an interesting opportunity but um you know i mean uh, there are different models that uh, that different uh, businesses and studios fall, and I, I get that. But yeah. uh, you know, there there is definitely a, a hunger for that kind of thing, at least among the community that we find ourselves in. And uh, and and we, I think we've seen proof of that by virtue of the fact that we do have Blu-rays that are of different versions of a film. Uh, Superman Two came comes to mind. You know, there's Richard the Donner, Donner yeah. the, the quote-unquote Donner cut, uh, which is which is more of a hybrid actually but still it's a, it was a different version than what we had previously uh then other films came out that was that was one of the great things about blu-ray and dvd was that this allowed for director's cut to happen i mean blade runner is probably the, the textbook yeah. example of this they have like three different cuts uh, of the film yeah yeah so but that that was that's one of the great things about the film right and the experience of it you can watch different versions of it and you can really experience it from different perspectives and i think that really enhances uh, the experience of the film, and so uh, uh, and I know, and other people maybe feel differently. Feel like it it detracts because there should be one definitive version. I, I get that viewpoint as well, but I think there are possibilities. That's for sure, and and I don't know how you feel about that, but I definitely. Well, one of my favorite movies. I love the the final cut of Blade Runner. So I like I I don't mind the multiple cuts and sees different perspective on things as well. I do understand like. Well, they should have just made that begin with, but you don't know what like the studio had was was doing or the budget constraints or what the uh, that situation pertaining to that film. Another one, uh, Kingdom of Heaven. I think that's the Orlando Bloom movie. Um, I think it was like yeah. Ridley Scott yeah, who did that Ridley one. Scott. I think. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, that's another one that had multiple cuts to it too, and I think one of the cuts was actually better. Uh, it, I don't know. Um, but different cuts stuff is very fascinating because. Hey, as a collector, that's more that's more films you put on your shelf. <laughs> uh, Zach, do you have any takes on this? Yeah, one of I was just going to mention one of our other hosts that we have on this podcast. Todd is a huge fan of the Kenneth Lonergan film Margaret, which yes. of course notoriously kind of butchered by the studio in terms of its release and its scheduling and being pushed back. And so, um, I don't know. It just it just kind kind of came to mind in, in in your conversation about you know which iterations of the film. Um, do you as a viewer most admire? Is it the director's original intent or something that the studio put out? So it's, it's, it's one of those great fascinating debates that we, we can have as, as film lovers and not really come to one conclusive answer. And, and like you said, Dice Kate, they're defenders of it. And um, you know, either way, we, it, it's fun to talk about and think about. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, that, I'm so glad you brought that up that, that point too, because one of the things also that we always have to keep in mind is what what is the overall lasting effect that is to be had when a, a label, say, for example, Criterion, when they release a film 
that is actually a, let's say, an, a different version or an international cut or something uh, that is different from, let's say, domestic versions that were made available in North America up to that point. What is the lasting effect of a Criterion releasing uh, a film uh, that 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 quote unquote new version and that's it? What right? So for, let me let, let me try to give an example because I'm not making I, I know I'm not making that much sense. But for example is the the film. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, yeah, there's the film called Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, mm -hmm. and uh, the film actually is. A, it, it, there's a different cut uh, that was, yes, yes, thank you. So the Criterion release, which is splendid, by the way, one of my absolute favorite Criterion releases. I love the film. I absolutely love the film. Um, I, right, the, but the version that we get on Criterion is actually, a, I think it's a, a slightly longer version. There are some scenes that were part of that, which weren't in the the versions that were made available in the US, let's say on VHS or something up to that. And so I was watching the film on VHS a lot and I was used to a certain version, but when the Criterion version came out, it, in many respects, it was in many ways a kind of different experience. And so there, there, is, a, there, there, there is this way that, that that kind of release without necessarily referring to past versions becomes the definitive release. Some people generally will say that's a good thing because you're getting the director's version or director's intent or, or the artist's intent or whatever. And so I, 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 uh, I would say maybe 85 or 90% of my heart is in that camp. But the remaining 10% of my heart is, is thinking, oh, it would be really nice if some kind of callback or mention could be made with regard to these releases that were made in domestic markets. True, they might have been at the whim of the studio. They might have been without the, 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 uh, the permission of the director artist. I understand that. But still, these were versions that were made available. So it would be nice to have some kind of callback. There isn't criterion as a general proposition, I think, doesn't necessarily do that with its releases. So we see also film like Kagemusha, the, the Kurosawa film. The film that we get on Criterion is actually the, I think it's, uh, it's like the, the Japanese cut of the film, which is longer than, what's it, the, the, uh, U, the international US cut that was made available on VHS in the US market prior to that. So I think the US market was about two hours. Uh, the Japanese cut is, is kind of longer and has some subplots that were excised for the international cut. But that's the version that we get. And that becomes kind of the standard version, uh, which is nice and all, I, I get that. But again, the final 10% of my heart say, it would be nice at least to have some kind of dialogue uh, with regard to uh, what, how this changes the perspective of this film. The, the final one, I think the most recent one that comes to mind is the film, um, uh, the, the Rossi work, uh, Christ Stopped at Eboli. And as you, as you may know, Criterion recently released this on Blu-ray. It was quite magnificent because you were getting, for the first time, I think, on Blu-ray with English language uh, subtitle support, the, the quote-unquote full version of the work, which is, I think, in episodes, four episodes that was brought for, meant for broadcast TV in Italy. Uh, so essentially, it's a nearly four-hour work. Up to then, in uh, no, I think North American markets on DVD, you could only get the shorter, approximately two-hour or so version. So you're getting essentially uh, a version that's almost twice as long as what you, the theatrical cut. But the Criterion release doesn't make any reference 
to the theatrical, shorter theatrical version. And so what that means is essentially the Criterion version is essentially attempting to make the longer version the definitive version, which I understand. As I say, 85 to 90% of my heart says, yes, that's great. I agree because that's the intent, right? But the remaining 10% says, okay, what about reference to how this changes our perspective, right? And I think some kind of understanding of that is, is, is very essential, at least from my perspective. Again, because perspectives uh, change over time and, and uh, we have to remember what people saw and how they feel about what they saw, how I felt about a version when I saw that version and how that might change with respect to a, a different version. I think these are very valuable uh, to keep in mind. And so uh, that becomes a little bit lost uh, in, in these, in, and I'm not saying Criterion is the only uh, label that does this. I think other labels do this. Criterion doesn't do this all the time. It, it does have instances where it does release different versions of the film. Uh, so that's really good. But the, uh, you know, but, but at the same time, it's, it's, uh, it, uh, it, it's a little bit, I mean, here's, I'm sorry, here's one last example and I, I, uh, I'll, I'll stop, but uh, uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock, right? Picnic at Hanging Rock is another example. The release by Criterion is great. Absolutely great. I love the film. I absolutely love the film. But you're getting what's referred to as the director's version. And um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but just off the top of my head, you know, that version is a little bit shorter, actually, than uh, some uh, theatrical release cuts of that film that were actually released. And so you're getting stuff, you're, you're getting a version on Criterion without some of the little subplots or little extra scenes that were otherwise available in a different version. And so you're getting actually a little bit of a shorter version. So you have to find the, the, the quote unquote longer cut elsewhere. I mean, when it all comes down to it, I think the, the, direct, the Criterion version is, is, is actually, uh, it's great. And in many ways I would say it's, it's artistically, from my point of view, uh, superior. That being said, there is a value in this kind of comparative analysis. And so uh, I just, that, that, that makes the, the hunt for different versions, at least from my perspective, uh, very valuable. I'm sorry to have uh, robbed all the time here, uh, but uh, uh, thank you very much for the indulgence. No, you're good. Yeah, another example of that too, Daisuke, would be um, Criterion's release of Andre Rublev, which I, yeah. I think they, they originally had the, the um, 205 minute cut and that was released also on Laserdisc. And now in the Blu-ray, they have The Passion According to Andre because the director's cut is like just over three hours. So it is interesting kind of comparing and contrasting those different versions. And I'm, I'm thankful that Criterion um, is able to include both versions. Another title that comes to mind too is The Decalogue. And I love how Criterion was able to incorporate a short film about killing and a short film about love as supplements to episodes five and six, because I think both the, the episodes are great, but, but the films are also great in a much uh, different way. Yes. Um, particularly short film about love has a completely different ending and it um, you know, really uh, affects your viewing of it. And um, I don't know, the Decalogue is maybe my favorite Criterion release. And uh, so I just was just thrilled when they were able to release that because the, the, the facets version was pretty bare bone and didn't have those releases included. Oh yes, yes, yes. That uh, it's it's. I think it's essential. I think viewing of the Decalogue is essential. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Also, another interesting one with different versions, uh, the Tree of Life. I thought was really interesting. Uh, uh, really, really interesting. Actually, I go back and forth as to which version I prefer, 
because I really don't know. I think each has its own merits. So, uh, but that that I actually once I did a, a I, I did a I tried to do kind of an in depth comparative analysis on YouTube. I don't know if I don't think it was that successful, but the, the point of that was to try to see what the differences were and how that affected the viewing. There are a lot of differences, actually, even slight changes of, of order of scenes, even though the scenes themselves are the same, makes for really compelling different uh, viewing experiences all around. So uh, as I say, these are examples of, of what what this kind of these kind of comparative analysis opportunities can bring. These are like the joys of cinema, in my opinion. They're not the only joys, of course, but they're one source of, of, uh, of uh, sort of, uh, of, uh, of fun in terms of the cinematic journey, so, yeah. Yeah, and there was something similar with The New World as well. And they even had in yeah. The New World, like the, the comparison um, visual essay too. Yeah. But that one was a little different because the, there was one version that was 4K and the others weren't quite as high quality if memory serves. So, yeah differences like that in restorations or what prints they're using also kind of impact um, how you view it. That's a very good point. Yeah, I agree. I'll admit, I've only came on to know, you know, Zach and Terry and his brother Todd uh, about seven years ago. And that's when I first got brought into the Almost Sideways family. And then we started this podcast maybe like three years ago. And I was doing some YouTube work as well, trying to expand our kind of our reach a little bit. And then I'm, now I'm starting doing more podcasting stuff with them as well. Like I said, my film knowledge isn't as vast as your, yourself or Zach or the other guys as well. However, one of my very first Criterion movies that really got me hooked on with them and I'm trying to expand my collection was uh, The Red Shoes. That was my very first Criterion movie I ever watched. Uh, I borrowed it from Todd from the podcast and I absolutely fell in love with like the visual style and of course I wanted to get build my collection my collection is not nearly as fast as yours I got about I'm like a small collection I got like 15 movies now but it's ever growing now so I'm trying to pick up one at least once a month or a couple and so I was kind of wondering what was one of the film that you first remember like that was your first time experiencing a Criterion collection oh wow that's a good question um, to be perfectly honest, I don't quite remember what my first criterion was. Yeah. Uh, I think that part of the reason why was because uh, when it, I mean, I was there when they were first releasing the DVDs and I actually was there. I, I didn't have the, the Laserdisc at the time. But uh, as I say, when I was in university, we had there's a, a little bit of a Laserdisc library and among them was was uh, were some of the criterion Laserdiscs. Um, so I don't remember exactly the first, the first ever Criterion I saw or bought. I mean, I was there, so I was able, I was there when when they were releasing, uh, you know, Seven Samurai and RoboCop and uh, 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 Hard Boiled and The Killer. So you know, yeah. you could buy those, right? Whatever they were, thirty nine ninety five or something like that. I forget, but. Uh, um, and so, but I remember some of the ones that were really, really stuck out to me. Uh, just going forward, um, they might, they, they weren't, let's say the first ones, but the ones that I was consciously, I, I, I was consciously thinking, like, this is really great uh, in terms of a re overall release. Uh, for example, let's see, these came a little bit later, but the, but the, the for example, the Teshigahara set, the, the Hiroshi Teshigahara set on DVD, which is unfortunately, the set itself is out of print, but although the one of the films, um, uh, is available uh, on Blu-ray. Uh, Woman in the Dunes is available on Blu-ray. So you can get that. Uh, that. That set is remarkable. 
um, Pitfall, Face of Another, and th those would be great to have on, on uh, separate Blu-rays. Or the set itself, if it could come back, that would be great. Um, another one you, you mentioned, Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters. That was uh, really, uh, it, that was a, a, almost mind-blowing for me uh, because uh, of uh, the film itself, but also a lot of the, the features there. Uh, and let's see. Um, I think uh, um, it came a little bit later, uh, much later, in fact. But the one of the releases that I I am just uh, overwhelmed by is uh, the Edward Yang film, uh, A Brighter Summer Day. And uh, this is because uh, I, I don't know if you know this, but it was so impossible to watch that film in in like good quality and so you and I, I tried but it was very you know so but then you see this this great release and uh, uh, the um, uh, Tony Rain's involvement and then all this and so it's it's uh, it, and it's it's one of the one of my app it could be my favorite uh, film in the Criterion collection I think and so it's it's a it it and I remember just watching that for the first time on Criterion. I was, I was numb. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe, and it was, and it's it's one of the most important films of uh, of modern cinema history. And we have it in this great release that will be with us forever. So I was, it, it was very overwhelming. Um, uh, so those are just some examples. I don't know. I, I mean, wh what about you? Were there any 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 titles like that that really really did it for you as it as it were as far as Criterion is concerned? Uh, well, for like for me, like I only got like like I said like maybe twenty or so. I'm still trying to build that collection up. But like the red shoes, like, after I borrowed that from uh, Todd, I immediately had to get that one too. I think it's just a fascinating piece of like, cinema. Like again, like my knowledge of older films is I'm growing on it. I'm not. I still there's a big some big gaps and that's why on my little segments of the podcast I'll be doing like kind of blind spot reviews movies I've never seen up to that point and kind of going into it with fresh eyes which I'm really looking forward to starting uh but I the red shoes for me is another one I really loved mm -hmm. I um the night of the living dead which is kind of a, a recent one I just watched for the first time I picked that up and I just was blown away by that uh George Romero scope and I thought that's actually there's so many zombies were over oversaturated with that kind of like zombie horror, but that one was it's knocks it out of the park. It's probably one of the best ones. Um, and then I've also let me see here. Um, Zach, how about you? Uh, which ones? To, I'll get mine and see what like see what movies I have. Zach, which movies kind of really captivated your criterion? Well, when I first started collecting, it was um, I think those early Hitchcock movies like Rebecca and Spellbound and Notorious, yeah. which all quickly went out of print. But not only are they great movies, but yeah. the supplements on them were absolutely remarkable. I mean, radio broadcasts of the, the, the script. And uh, I remember in the Spellbound DVD, they have a whole segment on the use of the theremin in the soundtrack, which was just uh, <laughs> yeah. remarkable. And, and that's really initially how I got into Criterion was the fact that maybe if, um, you know, I watched these movies, I didn't always understand them, or maybe even if, even if I wasn't able to appreciate them. And I think that's, hey, you kind of talked about this regarding like eight and a half, which I, I, I agree with. It's, a, it's been a hard movie for me to get into. At least yeah. I can watch the supplements and at least I can watch or maybe listen to a director's commentary. 
and gain a more of a appreciation for the movie than I ever could possibly have just watching it without that context. And I mean, it, uh, you know, so, so the supplements as well as the actual, you know, 4K restoration or preservation prints or whatever, um, the, the blending of both of those uh, it is remarkable. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would differentiate it out from like, um, you know, watching a, a, a restoration that looks pristine, a 4K restoration perhaps. Um, one that comes to mind is uh, The Tree of Wooden Clogs. Seeing that for the first time yeah. um, uh, with, with the restoration was uh, a remarkable visual experience. But then also coupling that with supplements, um, really, uh, I, I think you have to parse them out a little bit, but when, when combined perfectly um, can really be a magical experience. No, I agree. I agree with you in terms of your perspective and distinction between the experience of watching the film itself, the, the presentation, the criterion, what's the phrase that's often used, a film school in a box approach, the, uh, the supplements and that. So I agree 100%. And I'm glad you mentioned Spellbound, that DVD, it's out of print. You're right, it has some great supplements. I think that has, um, uh, correct me if I'm American track as well. And uh, I think there's a, if, if I'm, if memory serves, she, she has a great comment. Uh, I, I'm, I'll be very, very ambiguous about it, but there's a, a, a great scene involving skiing and uh, Ingrid Bergman and Gregory Peck skiing. And, and uh, I always thought about this in my mind, but I never really put it together until I heard the commentary, which mentioned how, how like it talks about the, 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 their fashion, what they're wearing when they're skiing. It's kind of, kind of, uh, kind of like they're wearing a, like I think Gregory Peck's kind of wearing a suit or something when he's skiing. It's just kind of a funny thing. So I'm, I'm, glad, that, I'm glad the commentary track made that. That's just an example of, I think, how, how great that was. It would be great to have that back in the Criterion Collection, by the way. If you, crossed right yeah, yeah that oh, okay, okay. <clears throat> yeah so yeah i think that's uh, something i need to definitely do a better job as kind of just not just a consuming a film just from you know play to credits but i also need to start diving into some of the supplements as well and kind of get get to know the film on a different aspect as well i think that's something i've I need to have make more time for. Uh, it, sometimes, it, admittedly, it's, it is tough can, when you have a family and you have jobs and stuff like that too, but making time for that is kind of a rewarding experience w when you're able to. And that's something that I definitely want to be able to do. I just got the, the uh, 1980 film, The Elephant Man for David Leach. And I know you just posted a video on it, Dice K. So <laughs> I'm really excited to go into those supplements and actually kind of explore this for my first time watching it so uh something i'm looking forward to uh for doing so i i admit that i need to uh, do a better job on checking out those oh no no i mean you you know you you should uh give yourself more credit my friend i mean part of the the fun is is exploring it in your own time and so true. you should savor it and, and you can take as much time as you want and and also you know you mentioned uh, you mentioned something about how you ha you say you describe yourself as not necessarily you, you're starting Criterion or or you, you don't know sort of older films or so. But you know you you have you have a, a wealth of film knowledge that is that is uh, unknown to me, and I don't know the the things that you know. So you have a, a great deal of expertise uh, in in a lot of films more than I do. So so uh, uh, you know uh, I'm I'm. Uh, 
uh, I think that's very important to have, right? And it, yeah. as I say, you know, we've, if we if we read, uh, think about certain films, uh, there are certain films that we that we are into, and then there are other films that we really don't know. So every one film that we we have, there is uh, maybe a thousand films that we haven't seen. So you have, uh, you, you know, you have a lot of films that you've seen that I haven't seen, and uh, and that's also the the whole thing about films that we. Every film that I've seen, I know that there are 10,000 films that I haven't seen and I'll never be able to see. And even, you know, Criterion, I think, will be the first to admit that they can't cover every single film ever. Yeah. Uh, and so they're limited in terms of their own resources. So uh, even though we say that we're into Criterion at the same time, there are many other films outside the Criterion. Of course, we know this. Of course, of course, right? It goes without saying, but... yeah. Um, so, you know, the things that you, 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 you've seen, I think, is great. Although, as a Criterion fan, it's always nice to hear someone getting into Criterion for the first time. Incidentally, could I ask you, are there any titles that you are eyeing for uh, for these sales or anything like that for end of the year? I know Parasite maybe was up there. Yeah, Parasite was your titles. Well, I, here's what yeah. I have so that you know. I have The Graduate, The Red Shoes, Louis Dormus Color, On the Waterfront, All About Eve, The Elephant Man, Night of the Living Dead, Twelve Angry Men, Marriage Story, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and Roma. But I know that the one that I, because I just got the Elephant Man last couple weeks ago, I wanted to get Rebecca, because I saw that one, yeah. uh, and I'd never seen it, and I didn't want to watch that, that Netflix remake without seeing that one first. Um, so I know that uh, Rebecca was one of them I wanted to get, The Seven Samurai was one. And uh, I know I have a cut of this, but Silence of Lambs, uh, and then um, there's, a, there's several, but I'm going to put this by those are at least the th first three that came to my mind. So those are ones I know I would try to pick up uh, shortly. So, so. And, and I'm all about yeah. essential, essential Fellini. I've been dream dreaming about yeah. it. I can't, I can't wait for it. Yeah, yeah that's going to be great. That's, that's going to be really great. Yeah. Uh, are there any Fellini films in particular that uh, you you are you are looking forward to or that you admire, Zach? Um, I well, I mean, I I, I own a bunch of them um, already. Um, I'd have to kind of look back and see some of the titles that are maybe new. But um, let's see. I'm just uh, I'm excited for the restorations because I know, for example, and, and the ship sails on. I'm not sure if that's in the essential pack, but I know the DVD is quite old, and so that might be um, if if that's included, that would be something that I would look forward to seeing a restored version of, um, along with maybe Vitaloni. Um, and maybe a couple others. Yeah. That's so great. I think it also includes inter, in, uh, 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 Intervista as Intervista. well, I think. Uh, yeah. And so that's a really interesting uh, sort of uh, postmodern meta type of film. It's great to watch, especially uh, as a double bill with uh, La Dolce Vita. Yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, that's going to be a really interesting set. It, it, it also begs the question uh, for the future, what other big sets will we see? I mean, we've seen a number of great sets from Criterion this year. Bruce Lee, Agnes Varda. Uh, we, we could have gotten a Wong Kar Wai set, but I think that's coming, coming on the horizon, actually. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the, the Fellini set, Essential Fellini. Uh, so it begs the question, what, what other big sets would you like to see in the future, I suppose? Zach, go ahead. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a really tough question. Like in an ideal world, um, 
I'd like to see uh, Werner Herzog movies, uh, um, a Werner Herzog set. I, I know that Criterion hasn't really released much of his stuff, but um, a lot of it is, is it's out there, but difficult to find. I would, and, and then in terms of a director that um, Criterion has um, done, um, uh, Fassbender, which obviously they have a Fassbender set already, but maybe because there's so many titles, um, particularly in, in the early 70s, Fox and His Friends and Jailbait and others, um, I'd love to see some sort of uh, essential release. That would be huge. <laughs> yeah. that, would be like, that would be huge. That and a Godard set, that would yeah. be like, my goodness, that would be amazing. That would be absolutely, yeah. Fassbinder, that, that's an interesting, yeah, that's an interesting area of cinema. Really interesting. Um, it's almost like, that's like, um, kind of like the art house, that's kind of the art house version of Mika. Like Mika is also art house in many respects, but my point is in terms of the, the scope of the filmography, <laughs> you're just yeah. talking about a lot of stuff. So, and trying to watch everything. I think it, getting a, a complete or co close to complete uh, box set would be great. I, I would also think like a lot of people ask me, do you think there would be a Kurosawa Blu-ray set or something like mm. that? I mean, it's always, it would always be nice to see that box set return. Um, and also the uh, like a, a filmmaker that also has a big filmography, well represented in Criterion, but without a box set necessarily, uh, not counting Eclipse, of course, would be things like, or, or some other box sets would be like Ozu, Yasujiro Ozu. That would be great to have uh, a really uh, a, a, a comprehensive uh, release of that. I think that would be interesting. It's also really dependent too on, on what can sell. And what can't sell, I suppose, That's in terms true. of the business decision. I think Bergman's set was really good, was a good seller, I think. And it still continues to be a good seller. I'm not sure about Godzilla. I think that also is a fairly popular one. And Bruce Lee, too, I, I have a sense that a lot of people who aren't necessarily Criterion fans really got into the Bruce Lee set and uh, because it had a, a number of things that weren't available up to now on disc. So uh, that, 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 that's another thing uh, that, that's possible. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see. I mean, there are a lot of, oh, also, the, yeah, the, the, the world, I'm so sorry to interrupt. I, I apologize. Okay. The, the World Cinema Project set, that is, that's like, that's one of my favorites right now. I mean, in a, in a year, it's been a topsy-turvy year, of course, but in a year where we've gotten a lot of great sets from Criterion and other labels, Gamera set, uh, Tsukamoto set here, um, there are have been some great, uh, uh, quite like uh, Varda, Bruce Lee, these are great, but World Cinema Project number three could be, it's, it's definitely in the top three for yeah. me. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's magnificent, absolutely yeah. magnificent. Yeah. I've really enjoyed those recent videos you've put out on some of those titles, in particular, the, the Babenko film, uh, Pichot, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but that's a film that I've been trying to track down for years, and I, I, I can't wait to finally watch it, and watching your, your uh, video about it um, made me just all the more excited to see it. Yeah, that is, and that it, it's 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 so powerful. Yeah, as you know, even now, a really powerful, very difficult work, and and uh, uh, it's 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 challenging. Uh, but it needs to be challenging because of the subject matter. And so, yes, the the Babenko work is is uh, is great. Yeah, it's great to have, and that's in the middle of the set. So, uh, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right to point out that work. Uh, I don't want your son's son to uh, sound like he needs to, he wants to beat you in Mario. So if you need to go, we, we totally get it. We will, we will, uh, we should definitely set up a part two and maybe, maybe all three of us break down a criterion film one day on a pot for an episode. 
Yeah, I'm so sorry. I feel like I have no, don't even worry monopolized about it. the time. So I apologize. That's why I, we I wanted, wanted you on. we be, wanted to talk to you. <laughs> before we go, could you just uh, each of you just could you provide maybe a recommendation or film or anything that I mean it can be anything. It can be criterion, it can be anything. Uh, uh, it doesn't I mean you don't have to think what have I not seen not, not, nothing like that but just something that you really uh, uh, is uh, is a film that you think is worth recommending. I'd love to hear it as a, as a way maybe, and that can be a, a kind of a way for us to, to leave the conversation and we can pick it up at part two, but uh, do you have any recommendations Ooh. for me or for, for everyone else? Well, I know we just had uh, the, you did 31 on 31 for the October and you went with it really kind of obscure, not like main big uh, obvious choices for your films, which I loved. Two movies that I saw that I would recommend for that, uh, 1992's Candyman, which is very good. It's a very fan great film. Um, and also an 80s slasher film called Sleepaway Camp, which is another one okay. that I find. It's another one that's uh, kind of under the radar, has a crazy twist. If you don't know that what happens, then that's a, both are fantastic films. You're looking for some, in, some really good under the radar horror films that are not like the Halloween, Mike, uh, Freddy versus or Freddy films, Jason movies. Those are some ones I would recommend. Yeah, I would um, recommend uh, some, a title I mentioned earlier, um, "The Stolen Children" or "Il Ladro di Bambini," which is available on Amazon Prime. Um, it's a phenomenal film, very much in the sort of modern neorealist tradition. Um, and I would hope, in an idealized world, that Criterion would consider putting it out. And then um, I guess I would say that. Um, uh, the, the film this the film that came out this year that's affected me the most is um, never rarely sometimes always I'm not sure if you've seen yes. that case, but Great. Uh, that's a really powerful um, film about um, uh, uh, it's it's a film about a, a teenage girl who has to get an abortion and um, all the sort of hurdles and obstacles that she encounters in in that journey um, really powerful filmmaking by uh, Eliza Hitman is the director. Yeah. What, what, where, where is that? I, I'm sorry, I'm very bad with my recent releases. So that was released this year? Yeah. Yes, it was released right around the time of the, the uh, Shut shutdown. Down. So it didn't, it didn't get a huge theatrical release, but it was re released um, streaming. And okay. um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really powerful filmmaking. Yeah, that, the one scene that, probably the, one of my favorite scenes this year is when sh they explain the title. The title plays into this one yes. scene and I'm not, I won't go, I won't expand it anymore because I think it's something that probably most, most emotionally impactful moment this year. Definitely. Um, so definitely recommend That's a great film, Zach. Great film. Top 10 this year for me, top five possibly. So. Oh, really? Okay. Okay. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you. In closing guys with Dice K, all his links to his social medias, uh, his YouTube channel and his, uh, his YouTube channel will be in the show notes of this episode. We both highly encourage you guys to check out his YouTube channel, especially if you're looking for some really good movie recommendations of films that you haven't seen yet. Uh, we, we both encourage, encourage you to do that. So, And Dice K, I think you need to put out a video on Jaws 4, if, if, I, if I can make a recommendation to you. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts about the Jaws um, franchise. And I didn't know you were such a big fan of it, but that's, um, that's exciting to hear. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Yeah, I, I like I like Jaws. I like Jaws two a lot. I I I I saw Jaws three when I was a kid. So it there's a scene in particular in Jaws three that really gets to me, 
oh, it's really freaky. I think about it now and just, oh, it freaks me out. And then Jaws 4, yeah, yeah, so, okay. I, I have a video actually where I talk maybe ad hoc about Jaws films, but uh, maybe okay. one of these days as, as, a, as a kind of uh, maybe addendum to that, maybe I'll, I'll talk. Thank you very much for the encouragement, by the way. Oh, yeah. and also, if you're interested, also, you spoke about Sleepaway Camp. There's a great series, I think it's called Robot Chicken, Robot oh yeah, yeah, Robot Chicken, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there, there's a they they do a thing with uh, with Sleepaway Camp, which I think is uh, it's it's quite clever. So, nice. uh, but, uh, yeah, but uh, anyway, yeah. Uh, so, uh, thank you very much for the encouragement. Uh, I'll I'll certainly keep it in mind. Thank you. Absolutely. And again, we'll uh, we'll we'll be in touch, and we'll set up a part two, and maybe an also deep dive of a Criterion movie together. That'd be that would be an experience. Oh, gentlemen, it'll be my pleasure. Uh, thank you very much for being so welcoming um, and so generous with your comments and also uh, with your uh, observations uh, about yeah. uh, the, some of the things we discussed. It was really insightful. Thank you very much. All right, so Dicecake did have to leave, but I'm still here with Zach. And wow, what a great conversation we just had, man. I, that, I learned a lot. And also, man, I actually... <laughs> And there's a lot of movies I hadn't seen that he mentioned, but there's some movies that he he's seen that I I know of. So I was like, damn, that's awesome. Yes, yes, and uh, he's uh, echoing what we said earlier. He has an awesome channel. Check him out. I uh, I think kind of bar none, he's the for me at least the go-to Criterion guru. Um, when there are new releases coming out or when there's been been a big announcement, he's sort of the first source that um, I go to for for that information and. Um, you can tell how his passion, um, not just for the collection and not just for the physical media, but also for the films themselves, which is not always common in, in a lot of collectors, but um, I think that's what, what sets him apart. Yeah, definitely. And he has multiple copies of certain movies as well. And that's, that's the beautiful part because he always, he'll compare the copies in his reviews. Another thing you really mentioned one time when we were discussing having him on and was that he doesn't use the jump cuts like a lot of modern reviewers do. And granted, I was one of part of that as well. You kind of lose track of your thought and you do a cut and you just keep cutting a lot. Uh, he, he does, it seems like it was all pretty much flow in. You can, I, I've seen a video where he brought up his notes one time. So I was like, he has all written out. And I think that's a lot of people don't do it. And I, I just love like he's prepared, he's focused on these reviews and he's not just putting out stuff that is recent. Like he even said that his, his more recent knowledge isn't quite maybe there, but he's, he's very knowledgeable in the older films that are fantastic. So really enjoyed this conversation and thank you so much to Zach for being a part of it. Yeah, no problem, Adam. Now you got to get more criterions. I, I mentioned to you earlier, I feel like you have ones that I don't have because I don't think I have any of those with the exception of the red shoes. Yeah. Maybe a couple others. I have. Uh, did you say Silence of the Lambs? I have Silence of the Lambs, but I no. That's one I, I need. I, I want to get. Okay. Yeah. So so combined, our collection might be almost approach approaching dice games, but pro probably not. <laughs> probably not. Yeah, and I, I'm slowly getting the ones. Like I'm trying to branch out and get movies I haven't seen yet. So that whole uh, I haven't seen it quite yet podcast episodes I will be doing I have like on the waterfront haven't seen it yet all about Eve haven't seen that one yet either so I'm, I'm trying to branch out and get stuff that I ha have seen but they also haven't tried to branch out so 
having a set of funds to be able to do that <laughs> as well is uh, always fun. But definitely, uh, yeah. those are some fun things. And uh, let's plug it. Your guys' podcast, the Almost Sideways Movie Podcast, you guys will be deep diving One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest starring Jack Nicholson. I'm looking forward to hearing yes. your thoughts. I think it's probably his one of his top five performances that of all time, right up there with Chinatown and The Shining, two of my other favorite movies that he's done. The Departed, I have to mention that one. So up in those four, those are like battling for first place for me. So I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Me too. I, I, I don't know <laughs> what we're going to talk about, but uh, a lot of things to talk about with that movie. I have a lot of, per I have a lot of um, interesting personal connections to that movie that I'll talk about in the podcast. Like, yeah, yeah. so it'll be fun. fun. It's fun. I, I was undoing a box out of my in my garage, and I was like just opening something. I'm like, I had the VH, uh, not the VHS, but a DVD copy, perfectly like a pristine copy of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And I was like, why is it in a box, and why is it not on my shelf? I brought it down, and watched it, and it's fantastic. So Go it's ahead. kind of funny because talking about physical media with Dice K, I own the like 20 year old DVD version of it. I've never updated it, so. I think one of the things that I, I, you know, wanted to mention Daisuke a little bit is like, um, and this is maybe why we have different Criterion titles, but you know, when I buy Criterion movies, it's usually like, because it's the only version I can get. Yeah. Um, and so like, you know, All About Eve, I own as part of the 20, 20th Century um, Fox classic label. Um, although I'd love to see the Criterion release of it. Um, yeah. But uh, that's why so many of these films that I own are, are generally speaking more non-english language and a little bit harder to find yeah that's another thing too is that that's a great point if you can't get it you can't get it uh, i have like is there a film that you've had multiple copies of like mine the most copies i've had of a movie is the shining i have like four different copies of it i just bought the 4k last weekend too so i have like four copies of that but. um when the departed came out on dvd i had three three copies of it that but that's because it came out right around my birthday and three different people got me <laughs> copies of it and i think i kept all three because i love i loved it so much that's great uh heads up if you do get the the criterion of all about eve he dice breaks this down perfectly in his thing uh, he did a video on this that i watched this is how it's packaged no plastic just cardboard and that's the disc just sitting on two plastic knobs oh, so wow. so yeah it's just sitting. Yeah. Well, it's but, kind of funny you mention. It's it's funny you mention that because this is one of the rarest Criterion's out there. Chunking Express. It's one of the rarest that I have in my collection, and it is so flimsy. Literally, there have been times when the Blu-ray will come out, and it's not quite as flimsy as just hanging on to uh, the cardboard like that. But um, sometimes with the digi packs, um, they they are really flimsy and and it's a little it's a little scary but that's good to know about all about eve yeah that's kind of just i kind of don't like these little cardboard packs i like the hard plastic packs like but the, like the elephant man just came out and it's in the same kind of cardboardy yeah. type of packaging but that's the only yeah. thing that's kind of i love cri like the, the criterion but i just wish they would update like all plastic or, or something like that find a, like a ground where maybe they're able to do that i don't know because the DVD copy of all Elephant Man was released in a plastic, but then the Blu-ray was not. Not sure how that is, but that's not a knock on them. That's just how they that, how they packaged it. So still, you're watching it for the movie. I just don't want the movie to be damaged. I guess with that said, <laughs> I will let you go for the evening, and I, we will. Uh, yeah, looking forward to having another episode of Daily Notes presented by Almost Sideways on the channel next week's episode for myself. It'll be my very first episode of doing 
Why haven't I seen this till now? And that's going to be the Rocky Horror Picture Show with my good friend, Rudy's Movie Reviews, San Antonio's unofficial movie critic. He'll be on here. He loves that film. He's seen it countless number of times. So make sure you hit that subscribe button on all your podcasting needs and also have a lot of anticipation for that next episode, guys. Ah. Uh, uh, I expect see. a full um, version of Sweet Transvestite. Um, you know, maybe some moves, some karaoke style. Um, that would that would really, I think, bring up the viewership. Uh, for, for the for, yeah, I'll, uh, may, I'll, I'll get out right. I'll, I'll get dressed up like uh, Tim Curry there. <laughs> All right, guys. Till next time. We'll see you later.